0: I'm Al-Khemiheera and welcome to our 10th episode of Subject to Power. Thank you to all of our listeners who have found us and who have subscribed to this podcast and who shared us with friends and family and are interacting with us online. I so appreciate everyone who's part of this ongoing conversation I do want to give a trigger warning for this episode because we're talking about sex pretty explicitly, as well as sexual assault and sexual exploitation. So take care when listening. To my mind, pornography specifically and sexual exploitation more generally is an absolute key component in how male domination and female subjugation is maintained, kept in place. In our world. And I'll be focusing on this subject in several future episodes with a variety of guests because it is such an important area with many, many aspects to examine and discuss in depth. Aside from producing enormous amounts of mostly male orgasms the world over, Pornography also does a lot of other things, and in this episode, I'm talking to Robert Jensen, who has studied and written about the evolution of porn and sexual exploitation industries since the 1980s, and the effects it's having on men, on women, on children, and our societies. Enjoy the conversation. I want to start by, and I know you probably get that this is a common question for you because you're a man, how you came to radical feminism, and I'm just curious about that.
1: I was, uh, probably you would describe, a pretty typical liberal-leaning American male up until the age of 30. And at the time, in 1988, one of the most explosive debates around freedom of speech was the feminist critique of pornography. And I started doing research on that, and like any good liberal, I started with the assumption that these radical feminists were all crazy and were out to destroy free speech and all things good and true about America. That prejudice survived about an hour of reading, (laughs) and I realized it was, in fact, a prejudice that I was following the lead of the dominant culture, which told me as a man, don't trust radical feminism. (laughs) But very quickly, I started to understand that radical feminism was not a threat to me, but as I have long said, it was a gift. I believe feminism is a gift to men because it not only explains the systematic oppression of girls and women, which it does, of course, but it also explains why so many men are, at some level, profoundly unhappy and uncomfortable with the role models they are offered in a patriarchal society. So for me, the process of coming to a radical feminist analysis was slow. It didn't happen overnight. But before that year was over, I realized that much of what I thought about the world had to be rethought. And when you're forced to reckon with a lot of the things you were socialized into, like a patriarchal view of sexuality, getting some some distance from that, not only intellectually, but in your own body, can be a struggle. And at times it's been very difficult. But to me, radical feminism has been not only an incredibly creative intellectual experience, but a a profoundly life changing experience, all for the better.
0: It is, I think, rare for a man to become sensitized to radical feminism. So, what were the drivers, sort of, in your own life to look for? A solution, an answer. Yeah.
1: Well, I've met a lot of men who do take feminism and radical feminism seriously, and and we come from a variety of backgrounds. But I think in my case, what it helped me do is understand why I was never comfortable trying to be a man in traditional terms. I happen to come from a family background that includes a lot of abuse, and uh, I think I struggled to understand that, to even recognize it. But once I started reading feminist literature, I realized that the dynamics of domination and subordination that radical feminists identify in so much of our lives in a patriarchal society applied not only to men over women, but also applied to the way men treat each other. And in fact, that pathology infects so many relationships. And so in my particular case, I think it helped me start to sort out my own trauma, my own suffering. In a lot of ways, I grew up being used like girls are typically used, and I think that did give me some degree of empathy built in. But of course, that's not guaranteed. A lot of boys, young men who grew up with violence and sexual violence perpetrated against them, sometimes they embrace patriarchy and male dominance. You you can't predict how it's going to work out for anybody. You know, We can self-reflect, but we don't really know much about our own inner workings.
0: I have myself trouble articulating why feminism, in particular, as an analysis, is so important, not just to men, but to our future. But you have a whole body of work that explains that in very clear terms. And I know that's a big question, but
1: it's a big question with incredible levels of complexity. And it's also a very simple question. And I think the simple answer is that we live in societies that are structured on a domination-subordination dynamic. The oldest of those dynamics is male power being used against girls and women. But that's not the only dynamic of power and oppression. I live in the United States, and racial oppression is all around us. I live in a capitalist economy, and the economic inequality in that is another expression of that domination-subordination dynamic. So in some sense... We live so immersed in hierarchies, where it's assumed that somebody's on top and somebody's on the bottom, that we often can't even see how they operate. Now, for me, the first of those hierarchies I started to understand was patriarchy, institutionalized male dominance, and I understood it through feminism. I would say that's the first door I opened. And so my experience is walking through the feminist door, starting to understand institutionalized male dominance... Then looking around and saying, oh, here's how racial dominance works. Here's how economic dominance works. And then eventually I had to start thinking about what it meant for the human condition in relationship to nature. And so in that sense, it's all very simple. Now, each one of those systems are complex beyond my capacity to understand. But sometimes those simple frameworks tell us enough that we can move forward, knowing we'll never get it completely but yet feel confident in the moral and political judgments we have to make.
0: One thing I struggle with is men don't go to feminism as a solution, as an analysis. And I think part of it is they feel threatened in that it's some kind of rival ideology that's going to put them on the downside. And it is a very, very fundamental misunderstanding of what feminism is. So how do you overcome that?
1: That's an important point. It's true not only of men's resistance to a feminist analysis, it's true of many white people's resistance to an anti-racist analysis. The assumption is we've been in charge and if we lose control, we're gonna end up being treated like we've treated other people. It's a really deep paranoia almost. So how do you overcome that? Well, I think intellectual work, you know, analysis, writing books, all of those things matter. But I think the most powerful way to communicate it is simply by telling one's own story. And that's kind of complicated for men because one of the things feminism teaches us is we're not the center of the world. (laughs) Shut up a little, listen. And I have listened a long time and profited from listening to women. But I also need to be willing to speak about my own process, my own journey, my own understanding. And I have to be willing to be vulnerable in that. That's why I've had to learn to be comfortable talking about my failures talking about a very painful history that led me to need to resolve these things. And when we do that, then other men can see us vulnerable and the world doesn't collapse. You can be honest with yourself about the nature of the world you live in and your own participation in it, and you don't die. You don't collapse. Your life doesn't magically you know, end. You pick yourself up like everything else where we make mistakes and you move on. So, you know, for me, a lot of this started with the radical feminist critique of pornography. And like almost every man I've ever met in the United States, growing up I used pornography. And so I had to reflect on my own participation in it. And I think once enough men do that, then it becomes less scary for other men to do it. And that's I think that's always been the role of men in feminism, not to pretend we have the the deep insights.
0: You say in an article called uh, From Agriculture to Pornography, when we can see patriarchy as part of the larger human failure, feminism can be more inviting. Can you kind of unpack that?
1: One of the problems is that men are socialized in patriarchy toward competition, conquest, and admitting failure is not part of the program because for a lot of men, that, they fear that that projects weakness. So we're up against that socialization. But in fact, you know, everybody knows from a more intimate personal experience that if you can't admit failure, you're stuck. You you will never grow. You'll never be a very interesting person. I mean, imagine being in a relationship and never admitting that you made a mistake. Who would want to be with you? My God, what an annoying person you would be. I think all we're talking about is how how to sort of expand what we know from everyday life to that political level. I mean, seeing that that struggle for power that patriarchy creates can be transcended. And the first step is to recognizing where you sit in that system. And for men, that means recognizing that no matter what other problems we have, and let's face it, a lot of men don't feel very powerful. I mean, if you're a poor working class man, or if you're not white, or if you're suffering from any number of conditions, that make it hard for you to succeed in mainstream life. It's hard to feel powerful, but we have to start with recognizing that in relationships between men and women, we do have a power. It may not be the power to control everything around us, but it's a power that women are afraid of. And I think that's one of the things that really opened up my eyes was hearing women talk about their fear of sexual violence. And realizing that even if I felt like kind of a a skinny, ineffective, ineffectual man who was always at risk myself, I had to realize that I could easily be in a position where I would create in a woman fear. And that woman wasn't crazy. She had a reason to be afraid. And that's a kind of power. But before we start to look at how our own lives as men have been undermined by patriarchy, we first have to look at what it does for us. And it does give us a certain amount of authority and it gives us a certain amount of protection. But before men can think about how this has hurt us, how this system of institutionalized male dominance has hurt us, and it has hurt almost every man I've ever met, we first have to think about how it hurts women and girls.
0: You do say about social conditioning, the masculine social conditioning you received as limiting your imagination. And I find that an interesting way of looking at it. I'd love for you to talk about that
1: there's a phrase that a lot of educators use now called the man box. And it's meant to symbolize the ways that men's, especially men's emotional experiences are so constrained. So I'm 64 years old. I was born in 1958. And some people would would say, well, that's, you know, that's the old days. That's the way we used to socialize boys. But in fact, a lot of these Trends in socialization, I don't think have changed very much. I've been engaged in a conversation ongoing with a, a young man in his early 20s. And it's striking how similar, you know, despite 40 years difference in age. So what's one of the most obvious ones is men are conditioned not to express emotions. Well, that's not exactly right, because we're allowed to express the emotion of anger and get pissed off all the time. There, a lot of men are very good at expressing the emotion of anger. But the emotions that are connected to vulnerability, you know, sadness, fear, all of those sorts of things, we're supposed to repress. That's not a trivial thing. Being afraid is part of being human. Feeling pain is a part of being human. All sorts of things that are normal human emotions start to get boxed out for young men. And you literally become terrified that if you express that emotion, you are going to be punished you know, punished maybe by a father who yells at you and tells you not to be a sissy. I mean, all of these things are just woven into the fabric of the everyday life of so many men. I don't know a single man who doesn't have a story about how they were scarred by these demands that they repress their emotional life. For some men, it cripples them forever. I especially know men my own age and older who I don't think will ever have access to the full range of human emotions. I mean, I think they're broken. I mean, I've seen it up close and personal in my family, in people around me. And you could say, well, that's not anything like the threat of constant sexual violence. And I agree it isn't, but it still limits us. And as men, we're not gonna be of much use to women if we can't talk about how we've been limited. So in that sense, the fate of men and women are inevitably tied together. If men can't get over the pathology of masculinity, I don't think there's any hope for the world.
0: That's interesting what you say about like generational differences. I think we both live in North America, so we're very familiar with the left-right divide. And every single man that I know on the left, think that automatically makes them anti-patriarchal just by definition.
1: But having a, let's say, a critique of capitalism, a critique of Imperialism, a critique of white supremacy, doesn't guarantee a feminist politics. I, as I said, I started in the feminist anti pornography movement back in the late 1980s. And the most angry responses that we got when we would go around and do a slideshow, a lot of the angriest responses were from left liberal men because we were essentially saying, listen, we not only need you to rethink your use of pornography because of the way women and girls are harmed in the production, you have to think not only about why you need to stop using pornography, you have to think about your relationships to women more general. So for heterosexual men who think of themselves as on the left and critically minded, to say there might be another level of self-examination that you need to engage in often is very threatening. We try to develop a holistic analysis where we see the abuse of power in every dimension, but it's a complicated world. So the problem though really unfortunately hasn't gotten any better (laughs) because we've been talking about radical feminism and let's say a critique of pornography. But there's another wing of the feminist movement, I would call it the kind of liberal postmodern wing, that not only is unconcerned about pornography, but even often celebrates pornography and refuses to analyze the racist, misogynist, abusive nature of the industry and the effects on men's attitudes and behavior. So, if you're a left wing man, you can pick from any number of feminists who support pornography, and you can say, listen, I don't even have to think about this because those radical feminists are crazy. And here's what real feminists think. They don't have a problem. So, it's really gotten even more difficult. And that's why, again, I go back to talking about my own experience because if you can break through men's defensiveness and rationalizations, most men I know who use pornography have a very complicated and often a difficult relationship with it because finding sexual satisfaction through using disembodied women on a screen is not the most emotionally fulfilling experience in the world. It's good at one thing and one thing only at producing erections and very efficient orgasms. And I mean that in a kind of technical sense. That is what pornography does extraordinarily well. But, you know, I just asked men after you have become aroused and masturbated to pornography. In that minute after it's over, how do you feel? And very rarely do men say, oh, I feel great. That was that was wonderful. When men start to open up, they say, well, it leaves me feeling empty. I'm not the king of the world, and I don't get to tell everybody what sexuality should mean in their life. It's an experience that has varied meanings across time, space, culture, all sorts of things. But it's hard to look at the human experience and not recognize that at the core of sexuality is a human connection. When you are sexual with a person, you're vulnerable, you're in their presence, you're seen. I think the most powerful experience in sexuality is allowing somebody to see you, see you unguarded. It's kind of hard to do that with a disembodied image on a screen, just like it's hard to do that with a woman who's being prostituted, who's there because you're paying her. Those kind of intimate connections, they're not difficult, they're impossible. Every man I've ever talked to, when I could get to that level of honesty, I said, yeah, I feel pretty crappy at the end of it. But the power of pornography to produce quick and easy orgasms without any emotional risk, that's what pornography essentially offers men. It says, listen, you can feel the physical sensation of orgasm without being vulnerable at all, without taking any risk, without talking to another human being. Well, in a culture like this, that's for many men a very attractive option. But there's something profoundly sad about it, and I think men know that.
0: Yeah, it makes me think about the millennia that this has not existed for men, where the possibility of seeing a woman naked, either an image of or being in a sexual situation, involved a lot, a lot of effort. And... Here we are in a very, very rapid amount of time, have this like literally plethora of sexual situation of every kind right in your face without making any effort whatsoever. Like I can't, you know, what kind of disconnection does that produce in a human being? Like it's hard to conceptualize.
1: That makes me think of one of the claims that the pro-pornography forces make that drives me crazy When they say, "Well, there's always been pornography," okay. Well, (laughs) number one, that's not true. There's not always been, you know, the production of images that are hyper-sexualized like that. And people say, "Well, what about cave paintings? You know, like a naked figure in a cave painting." And I always say the same thing: is if you can't tell the difference between an occasional naked figure painted on the wall of a cave and Pornhub, where you have literally almost an infinite number of sexual images available at the touch of a key, well, then you got a reality problem. And of course, it's not only the access, it's the age at which we now have access to it. It's a struggle for an adult male to deal with pornography. I've talked to many adult men who feel like they've become addicted, that they know they want to quit, they can't quit. There's a big debate about whether we should call it porn addiction or not. I think it's a reasonable description but that's adult men now imagine you're 13 years old you have no sexual experience your emotional and cognitive faculties are not fully developed and you you stumble on to the internet on images like that that is overwhelming to children to boys and young men in a way that's hard to describe when i was coming of age and seeing pornography it meant things like playboy magazine hustler magazine I saw maybe a total of 25 minutes of graphic, sexually explicit film. That was difficult to deal with as a child. I still remember some of those images from literally 50 years ago. Now, compare that to 24 7 access to extremely graphic, sexually explicit, hardcore images in video. It's hard to even start to think about how that distorts the normal psychosexual development. Of children. And my friend Gail Dines, who's probably the leading feminist critic of pornography today, she's been saying for a long time now, we are running the largest unregulated social psychological experiment in history, exposing entire generations of children to these stimuli. And we have no idea what it's doing. But as the evidence starts to mount, what we know is it's doing incredibly destructive things. When I talk to young men, it's sometimes heartbreaking because they're up against so much more, more intense material, more access to that material that in a way, it feels like they never had a chance to just be a kid. I'll tell a brief story. When my own son, who's now 30 years old, was in junior high school, I asked him, you know, about dating and what were kids his age thinking. And he said, well, there's this girl who who wants me to be her boyfriend, but I don't want to be. And I said, oh, you don't like her? And he said, no, it's not that. He said, I just want to be a kid as long as I can. And that just got to me a bit. The self-awareness to realize he lived in a, a world that was forcing him into a role he wasn't ready for. I really have carried that for a long time. And I wonder how often if boys and girls could say that, they would just say, listen, I just want to be a kid as long as I can. There's enough pressure, tension in the modern world without then dumping this incredible, you know, thing on on kids. Or the, yeah, the, the pressure that young people feel.
0: Yeah. And that made me think a little bit about what pornography disturbs and in terms of like, you know, what, what sex is. Like, Of course, we have sexual attraction, we're sexual beings, but we also... As human beings who are capable of a lot of harm and are very vulnerable, sensitive beings, you need a lot of trust in order to be vulnerable, to be naked <laughs> with someone with someone else. and I'm just thinking about like how terrifying that is for young people who have no experience and the collision that that is with what porn does or what porn is.
1: Yeah. Well, normal human relationships involve all sorts of psychologically challenging experiences. So when we highlight the way porn disturbs some sort of normal psychosexual development, we're not saying we want to protect our children from every potential disturbance in the world. That would be ridiculous. But this flood of graphic, hardcore, sexually explicit material that doesn't depict anything like what we might call normal sexuality. And by that, I don't mean there's some single norm that everybody should meet. But the levels of aggression, for instance, in pornography are really off the charts. That is not a normal sexual attribute. And so it's not just that that young people are seeing, you know, naked bodies or sexual activity, it's they're seeing it in a very distorted view of what sex is. And the consequences of that, are not hard to imagine. It distorts young people's idea of what sexuality is. And take an example that's both so common now that it seems trivial but is horrifying in another way. The increase in reports of boys and young men choking women during sex. Okay. Where does that come from? Is that a natural part of human sexuality that that men just want to strangle women during sex? No, it's a common practice in pornography. And the reports of it are off the charts now. So that's an example of direct learning of very pathological sexual practices. And then in addition to that is the, the more subtle shaping of people's ideas. And in some sense, kids exposed to this don't really have a chance to be normal. I'm talking about normal in the sense of developing at an age-appropriate level experiences with real-life human beings around sexual desire. Before that even happens in a kid's life, they've been exposed often to years of this pornography.
0: Yeah, you said something. I I don't know where I read this, but you said, uh, the end of the world looks like pornography. What do you mean by that?
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, pornography is what the end of the world looks like. I don't remember when that line came to me. But what I meant by it was not that pornography is going to cause the end of human civilization, obviously. But when I was uh, working on film and a book on this, and was exposed to more pornography than I wish I had, that was more than ten years ago, and I, I realized I I couldn't look at any more. That something in me would be forever, I think, damaged if I kept doing research on this. That's how profoundly affected I was by it. But I, I realized that one of the the themes in this heterosexual pornography was depicting men's sexual pleasure with no empathy for women. If men could derive sexual pleasure from the abuse of women, from aggressive sex with women, from choking women, from multiple penetrations of women, well, if if men could experience that, that's all that mattered. And pornography never asks men to have empathy for the women in those scenes. And so what Pornography does is it kills empathy, among other things. Well, what's a world without empathy? A world without empathy is a world in which nobody ever asks, How does this affect other people? How does this affect other living things? How does this affect my community? The death of empathy is the end of the world in some sense. And sadly, I think we see that lack of empathy all around us. So when I said pornography is what the end of the world looks like, that's what was on my mind, that a world without empathy is a world that can't survive indefinitely. And that's one of the things that scares me most, not only about pornography, but about the very corrosive nature of the culture more generally.
0: Yeah. So you you have a quote, when women make gains in some arenas, such as education and business, men assert control in others, especially sexuality. You can look at that at like two ways. It can be enforced chastity on sexuality, uh, you know, sexual control that way, or it can be just a merciless exploitation. It, It kind of feels like it's just two sides of the same coin.
1: I think you're absolutely right. That conservative, patriarchal control of women, which basically says you find one woman, you marry her, and then you can do what you want, basically. Then she is, in a sense, uh, under your control. That is exactly the flip side of liberal sexuality and patriarchy, which says all women should be available for all men sexually. Neither one of those is a very good bargain for women. And neither one of them promotes the kind of healthy intimacy we're talking about. Because after all, if you think you control a woman with whom you are sexually intimate, you're cutting off areas of exploration. If you simply buy and sell women, you're cutting off areas of exploration. It's just a loser all the way around. Now, of course, we're not saying every conservative man is a, you know, patriarch in this sense, or every liberal man, you know, is just always out looking for the purchase of women. But these are trends you can't deny. I call these all the sexual exploitation industries. Prostitution, pornography, massage parlors, escort services, stripping. At the core, what they all are is the buying and selling of an objectified female body for male sexual pleasure. Do we want to, as men, be socialized to find objectified female bodies the most attractive? Second, do we want to obtain sexual pleasure through buying and selling those bodies? Well, the answer for me on both questions is no. And that there is no decent human society when that is normalized. You know, so some people will say, well, what if a woman chooses to be in prostitution or pornography? Well, choice is a very complicated question. First of all, we would have to ask, well, what are the meaningful choices available to them? But even if a woman were to freely, in the most full sense of freedom, participate in pornography, prostitution, or other sexual exploitation industries, we still have to deal with the fact that we live in a society which treats the buying and selling of female bodies like that. As something acceptable. And that shapes the whole culture. So there are a lot of levels at which we have to analyze this. But when I look at all of those levels, I come to the same conclusion that the sexual exploitation industries are inconsistent with any minimal definition of a decent human society.
0: That spurs a lot of thought. One, uh, I'm going to try to (laughs) formulate. So Kaisai Ekis Ekman talks about being and being bought and the split self, about that body and self are indivisible and that it's an illusion to think that you can remain intact as a self while selling your body when those things can't separate. So, but I'm also, I'm going to flip it a little bit. Men, when they are in a situation with the prostitute, any human being will perceive the true nature of what they're seeing. So they must see trauma, they must see detachment, they must perceive like a whole lot of other things that they also must detach from.
1: Yeah, it's incredibly important. First of all, let's go back to this dissociation. So one of the things we know about sexual abuse victims is that dissociation is a very common experience that when you're being raped the way you survive is to detach your conscious self from your body so that somehow you can survive well it turns out that that act of dissociation is very common among women who are prostituted i can't tell you the number of times i've talked to women in the industry who say i just detach my self floats above and and what happens to my body i'm kind of on autopilot so what does it say that The experience of sexual abuse victims, of rape victims, is so similar to the experience of women in the sexual exploitation industries. That tells you a lot about about what we're doing to people. You raise another very important point that I've thought a lot about is how can men not see it and experiences it? One of the ways I put this when I would do lectures, I would say, you know, most of the men in this room have never seen pornography. And the men would look around and the women would say, What are you talking about? We all watch it on our computer. And I said, By that, I don't mean that men have never experienced pornography. I say what men have never done is really seen what is happening because the arousal and orgasm are so powerful that it cuts off your critical faculties and you're not seeing what's really happening. So if you're becoming aroused and masturbating to an image of a woman being sexually degraded, that arousal overwhelms your cognitive capacity to see it. And of course, the minute it's it's over, you don't want to reflect on it. You don't want to critically analyze it. You want to move on. And that, I think, does speak to a kind of, I I don't know exactly the word for it, but a kind of damage to men's souls. (laughs) I don't usually talk about the soul, but whatever it is that makes us human, if we shut that off repeatedly, in the interests of a, a cheap and easy sexual pleasure, we lose something. And I think that's very dangerous, not just because of course, it's a sad state of affairs for men, but because it makes men more dangerous. And in the end, all of this is probably most important because of the dangers it creates for women and girls. And so I think you're right. Dissociation is in some sense on both sides. One is of course, far more disturbing the dissociation of women and the abuse of those women, but it all should make us both sad and scared.
0: Yeah, and I mean, the logical extension to that is that porn and prostitution and the sexual exploitation industries doesn't just affect the women and men who participate in it, but it affects every relationship that each of those women and men have and everyone who who watches and it has a permeating quality
1: absolutely i used to have another question i would ask women uh, especially younger women as i got older who had been socialized into this acceptance of pornography as just part of a sexual liberation they would say well you're an old guy jensen you don't get it you know we're all down with the, the liberated world and one of the questions i would ask is Okay, imagine you're, you've graduated from college, you're in your first job, and your boss is a man. Do you want to be in the office when he comes back from lunch at a strip club? In other words, he's just spent his lunch hour watching women perform sexually for him. Do you think that has any effect on how he sees you when he comes back to the office? Or is this compartmentalized? Go to the strip club, see those women, then come back and see you as a fully human, accomplished, competent peer in the office. Well, you know, women would say, you, you would get this kind of grimace like, no, that doesn't feel very comfortable. Another question I used to ask, imagine you have, for heterosexual women, if there are two men, both of whom are interested in dating you and on whatever criteria matters to you. These two men are essentially equivalent. The only difference between them is one regularly masturbates to pornography and one doesn't. Who do you wanna go out with? Well, I would wanna go out with the guy who doesn't masturbate to pornography. And I said, yet if pornography is harmless and you're down with it and you don't think it's a big problem, why would you make that choice? And those are kind of real world scenarios that take us out of this abstract conversation about sexual liberation and freedom of expression, all of which are important concepts, but really ask, what do we want in the world? And the fact is, what most of us want is to be safe and loved in intimate connection with somebody we trust. And in a world of sexual exploitation, that becomes increasingly difficult.
0: Yeah, which leads to the whole conversation about sex work is work and liberal feminism. And so I guess, I have a lot, a lot of trouble between sexual liberation. Why does that equal commercialization? What I don't get the concept.
1: Yeah. On one level, it's just, it feels crazy to say that prostituted women have a job just like everybody else. When I would talk to, to college-age students, I would say, if it's just a job, how many of you... Are putting it on your potential vocation list? And the answer, of course, is with rare exception, people who have other options don't choose to work in the sexual exploitation industries. What I do want to say to men who say, well, women choose this is, well, what are the conditions under which women choose this? And let me give you an example. I had a friend who in college worked in a strip club to make money for college. And she told me that if you had asked me at the time why was I doing it? I would have told you, well, I'm sexually liberated and I'm proud of my body and I make money and there's nothing wrong with this. She said, you know, years later, after she had been through a lot of experiences and a lot of therapy to understand her own history of abuse, she said, what I can tell you is almost every time I was up on stage dancing, I was either drunk or stoned and that I was dissociated the entire time. What I always try to focus on is men have choices. We have the choice not to use women in the sexual exploitation industries. Before we talk about women's choices, let's talk about why men choose this form of the acquisition of sexual pleasure. And is that consistent with a decent society? Now, is sex work work? Well, in some sense, yes. In the, in a kind of very superficial sense, women perform a service for men. But it is, is it work in a deeper sense? Or is it, in fact, a pattern of exploitation that we see? Well, and we do. So the whole sex work is work is quite frankly a diversion from asking what kind of world do we want to live in? In a lot of different kinds of situations, people who are economically vulnerable will do things they would otherwise not do and are not safe, are not consistent with a decent world. Well, we don't just shrug and say, well, that's the way the world is. We want to make the world a better place where people with fewer choices are not forced into those kinds of work. Now, liberal feminism, it takes a lot of different varieties, but it tends to revert to a kind of what I think is naive individualism, which says, as long as women choose something, it's okay. That all we're doing is creating choices for women. If you're stuck with a capitalist economy, you do want to give everybody the maximal amount of choices possible. But the point is that a capitalist economy, by definition, immiserates large numbers of people, and we want to create a more egalitarian and just economy. So liberal feminism that says, let's just maximize the ability of women to make it in capitalism, is inadequate. Now, a lot of the liberal feminists who support pornography and prostitution are also critics of capitalism, let's say. But in this one arena of sexuality... They fetishize this notion of choice. I can't speak to everybody's motivation, but when I talk to men who are otherwise radical, lefty, critical, but who embrace this very liberal notion of feminism, my observation is they are doing it to avoid the kind of critical self-reflection about their own complicity and patriarchy. It's what kept me from thinking about this for a long time. And of course, the other reason when you think about men resisting is you're talking about taking away a form of pleasure they have become fond of, I guess, you know, if you've learned to become sexually aroused and to masturbate to orgasm through pornography, it can be hard to give up. But, you know, in the end, I think the question is, do we change the nature of the system where sexual exploitation is no longer a norm? Or do we simply try to give women more choices within a system in which sexual exploitation is kind of the background. Well, I think that's the difference between liberal and radical. And in almost every social issue where we're trying to achieve a more just world, I think the radical analysis is usually the more compelling.
0: Wanted to talk a little bit about rape and rape culture, which is also an arena that you have covered a great deal and in The End of Patriarchy, you quote the organization Rain, which is Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network explaining rape. Rape is not caused by cultural factors, but by conscious decisions of small percentage of individuals. And this is the, this is the premier advocacy organization for rape in America. So
1: I think most of us have gotten past a very crude analysis of rape that says men are just inherently sexually violent. For most of human history, before patriarchy, rape was likely rare, and in some societies probably didn't exist. So rape is a an act that flows out of systems of institutionalized male dominance. Now, if you accept that, then there's a lot of disturbing consequences. So we know what legally constitutes rape. But what about all sorts of other male sexual behavior that might not meet the legal definition of sexual assault, but are all mixed up in domination and coercion? Sometimes people call this gray rape. One of the ways you can understand how common this is is to talk to women about their sexual experiences. Where, for instance, here's a story I've heard many times Imagine you're a woman, you go on a date, you're in a man's apartment. Now, Things take a turn in a direction you maybe not want, not ready for, but you know that you're alone with a man who is physically capable of assaulting you. Do you engage in some sort of sexual activity just to diminish the chance that you will be attacked? Well, women report doing this all the time. Women report, for instance, not to be too crass, uh, providing oral sex to men to avoid having to have vaginal sex because they fear that that will be the consequence of saying no. All right. Well, is that rape? You're not going to be able to legally prosecute that as rape. But it's not a, a sexual situation that we want to endorse. We don't want women to take this as simply, you know, part of the the cost of dating. So the minute you start talking about how men are socialized into this dominance and how that dominance is sexualized, you realize that the acts that meet the legal definition of rape are it's a crisis, of course. But there's a whole other element to the crisis as well. And for whatever reason, the anti-rape group you were talking about is trying to avoid that because they don't want to be tagged as too feminist. probably. Now, it is true that a fairly small percentage of men commit the acts that we legally define as rape. Rape isn't committed by, you know, every guy on the street. But to point to that is not to obscure that other kind of interaction that we're talking about. And that's more troubling because that's not just the rapist we can point to, the bad guy, the guy who jumps out of the bushes, the guy who breaks into your house at night and rapes you. Those are all horrific. I mean, I don't think anybody needs to explain why those are terrifying. But this other continuum of sexual violence that may not meet legal definitions scares the heck out of people. Because the minute you acknowledge that exists, then you have to say, as a man, you have to say, How have I participated in that, perhaps unknowingly? How was I socialized into that without ever being aware of it? And of course, women have to then reflect on their own experiences, which can be incredibly painful. So we have a choice. We either define rape as this very small, legally defined act that a fairly small number of men commit, which we can then push sort of off in the distance, or we deal with reality. And that is the culture that makes this normal. I've said many times that rape is normal. And by that, I don't mean that it's good or that it's something we embrace. It's normal in two senses. It's normal in the sense that most women have experienced some form of sexual violence or sexualized violence or have been in positions where they feared it. It's an absolutely normal experience for most women. And the other thing that makes it normal is that's the way men are taught to behave. It's normalized in that sense, which I'm not endorsing, obviously. But we have to acknowledge the way men are socialized into that. Well, if rape is normal, we have a problem far beyond reforming the legal system or making sure prosecutors take rape cases seriously. All that's important. There's incredible work to be done there. But the much more challenging question is who are we as a culture? And it's not surprising people don't like to think about that. A U.S. study, now several decades old, in which men who self-reported acts that met the legal definition of rape, 80% of them were adamant that they had never raped anyone. In other words, men who are raping women do not experience themselves as raping women. Why? Well, it's not because they're too stupid to know. It's because they've been socialized to believe this is acceptable sexual behavior. That is a chilling statistic. Now, sometimes men get very angry about this and they say, well, I don't rape, not me. Not all men is the hashtag, not all men. Well, nobody ever said all men rape. Nobody ever said every man is a rapist. What we've said is virtually every man is socialized to accept certain levels of aggression and sexuality as normal, which means, and I don't take this lightly, if you're a woman and you want to stay safe in the world, it's smart to treat every man as a potential rapist.
0: Very, very true. So for women who this conversation about consent is very on the table, where you shouldn't proceed unless there's enthusiastic consent and, you know, there has to be a clear yes and all of this stuff. But to me, like, we do live in a world where abortion just got outlawed federally. And so a big kind of looming reality of women not having bodily autonomy and so in a culture where we don't have bodily autonomy what is consent
1: this is what radical feminism has has said and it's why radical feminists are considered so dangerous by so many people because they take what we want to be simple black and white questions did you consent to sex yes or no are you an independent person with control over your body yes or no And the answer is often much more complex, and I I think you're absolutely right. It is only a more radical analysis that forces us to deal with these things. But what does consent mean? If you look at not only the objective conditions under which women consent, do they have other options that we would agree on? You also have to look at the subjective experience of women. Do they feel like they have other options? I've had men say to me, well, if that woman didn't want to be a prostitute, she could go work at McDonald's. Well, does that woman feel like that's a meaningful choice? How does the experience of being sexually abused as a child play into your understanding of yourself and your worth in the world? And I'm not saying this is true of all women who are prostituted, but it's a very common experience for women who are raped as children, often by trusted people and family members. Well, what does that do to you psychologically? It starts to cultivate this idea that your value in the world is your ability to provide sexual pleasure for men. Those things are powerful ways that shape our experience of ourselves. So if a woman has that experience, what does it mean to say she consented? You know, once you start down that road, you realize that there are no simple black and white answers to this. And that if we care about women as a group, Not just the individual women in our lives we want to protect, but if we really care about all women, and as Andrea Dworkin said, feminism either protects all women or it protects nothing. Well, then I find it hard to make any reasonable justification for the sexual exploitation industries, for prostitution, pornography, stripping, massage parlors, any of it. They all make the world less safe for women.
0: You addressed transgenderism in uh, the end of patriarchy, and that was 2017. In the five years since, uh, a lot has happened. So I wondered if, and in that book, you write about it in a circumspect way, saying you don't really understand the argument they're making. So I wonder where you are with that now.
1: The way I wrote about it in that book still is an accurate way of understanding the question. It's not entirely clear what kind of claims the transgender movement is making. One of the problems I think people have with it is the arguments underlying the assertion of trans rights in all sorts of ways that are a threat to women and girls are never articulated very clearly. So let's go with the basic statement that someone like myself, who is unambiguously biologically male in chromosomes, gonads, genitalia, secondary sexual characteristics. If I say to you that I appear to be male to you, but I'm actually female, my first question is what could that possibly mean? I don't understand what it means, and I don't mean that sarcastically. I literally do not understand what that could mean. Well, some people say, well, it means you have a brain that is more female than male. The problem with that is brains are not gendered that way. There's no distinctly male and female brain. If somebody says, well, I have a female soul in a male body, well, that's a spiritual claim. It's almost a religious claim, and and you can say it, but I don't exactly know what it means. Now, take another interpretation of that claim, which is I'm biologically male, but I feel uncomfortable with the role that men are forced into. I'm not comfortable with the norms of masculinity and patriarchy. Well, that I can understand. And everybody else can understand because we've all had experiences. And the question then is, well, what do we do about it? In other words, do we expand the notions of masculinity and femininity to include a wider range of experiences? Or do we say, if you don't feel like a traditional man, you have to become a woman to be complete? Well, I think the radical feminist argument that we need to change society, not just change categories that we fit in, is a much more compelling, humane, and politically productive path. The third thing I wrote in that book is when you think about the medical treatment, and I use treatment in quotes, that's involved in transitioning, the use of drugs, cross-sex hormones, and in the most extreme, surgery. Those are, I think, violent practices toward the human body. What surgery is, what we call now either sex reassignment or gender-confirming surgery, is the surgical destruction of otherwise healthy tissue. And I find that not something to celebrate, but something to be very concerned about and and quite frankly, to be very sad about. And in the five years since that book was published, I think the evidence is only more compelling that a kind of uncritical acceptance of transgender ideology is not in the interests of girls and women who are often then forced into spaces with what we call trans women men who identify as women and we're already seeing the consequences of that when you know trans women are placed in women's prisons how single sex spaces like changing rooms are not safe that's not hysteria to worry about that that's about the concerns that girls and women legitimately have but also what does it mean for people who identify as trans to wholeheartedly and with no critique embrace these kind of practices I think the culture is insufficiently critical. And the problem right now is most of the critique is coming from the conservative and religious right, which is not concerned about patriarchy at all. They're supportive of patriarchy. So the radical feminist voices that I think bring the most sanity to the discussion are routinely ignored.
0: Yeah, and the major feminist debate right now is focused on our rights to put down boundaries. As women, we all have a lifetime of training to protect ourselves from male violence or male sexual violence. So to suddenly go from a lifetime of that conditioning and training to say, no, no, we must be inclusive, come into all of our intimate spaces, all of our single sex spaces, and then being told that those boundaries are wrong. we're we're morally wrong to have those boundaries, is a very confusing and angry-making proposition.
1: (laughs) I agree completely. Let's just take a very simple example. You have a female changing room. If I walked into that space as a man, women would have a reason to be uncomfortable and afraid. If I simply declare, I'm not a man, I'm a woman, yet I walk into that room, what changes? For those women, nothing changes. Yet, if women make that obvious point, listen, we have grown up in a world where these threats exist, and we still have reasonable concerns. They're told that they're hysterical, that they're bigoted. I mean, it takes everyday experience and turns it on its head. The current liberal position is they should be allowed in, that man should be allowed in. Well, what you're really saying there is the interests and concerns and legitimate fears of women, mean nothing in the face of one man's demand. Well, I can't think of anything more patriarchal than that. As you're saying, it's kind of crazy making. It's like, how can this, how can we have gotten to this point? I can't imagine a society that truly cares about girls and women endorsing such a policy, yet we find ourselves being told we have to endorse it. Well, I don't. And as a result, I've lost friends, especially friends on the left who aren't, radical feminist who say, oh, well, you're a bad person now. I won't organize events with you. I won't be seen in public with you. I went through it for starting from the first time I wrote about this in 2014. And I can't count the number of times people have told me that my views are not welcome in any left liberal progressive space. What you're admitting is you don't have an argument. What you have is, you know, the raw power to keep somebody out. How does that lead us to a deeper understanding when we will not engage. Well, I don't understand. The whole debate around transgender ideology, frankly, took me by surprise. If you had said 10 years ago, this is where we would be today, I would have found it hard to believe. I have a theory about why it went this way. It's very simple that what embracing transgenderism does is gives people the appearance of fighting patriarchy because you appear to be challenging gender norms. What you're doing is really reinforcing gender norms. But embracing transgender ideology for most people doesn't cost you anything. You're not asked to do anything. You're not asked to be self-critical. If you're a man, you're not asked to, you know, self-reflect on your own abuse of women. And so it gives the appearance of being progressive on feminist issues with no cost. And so is it surprising that especially lots of men embrace this? No. In a way, it's kind of predictable. But it's incredibly unfortunate, and it has diverted so much energy that should go into the fight against patriarchy. That's the place we find ourselves.
0: Yeah, it certainly is. Although this issue has galvanized radical feminism, and I see signs all over the place that people are, you know, even the medical establishment and other establishment pumping the brakes on some of the stuff
1: And the mainstream media is also starting to expand their willingness to look at some of these issues. The New York Times, for instance, which has been sort of in an unbroken way, pro-trans ideology, has run a couple of stories in the last few months about some of the emerging data around the danger of puberty blockers and how they may not be safe. There's been work about detransitioners, that is mostly women, younger women, who identify as trans, sometimes have top surgery, and then realize what a mistake it was. So we are seeing that. But I do hope that the conversation continues. If I had a dollar for every person who told me, I agree with you on the trans issue, but I'll never say it in public because I don't want to get railroaded, uh, I'd be considerably wealthier than I am. I mean, and this has been going on for years.
0: That's been the biggest revelation to me about this, exactly what you just said, that how did we end up in such an intellectually compromised place? Yeah, that we can't have debate and cannot talk.
1: Yeah. Personally, I've been, you know, shouted down, yelled at, pushed out of organization. I mean, I I have my own stories. But what's really important, I think, is no matter how much I've put up with, when I talk to women who've spoken out on this issue, they put up with far worse. So in a way, the backlash against radical feminists for critiquing also reflects patriarchy. Men get hammered a little bit. Women get hammered a lot. Just the the commonness of rape threats that women who dare to challenge any of this get, women are constantly facing greater physical threats and sexualized threats than men ever face. So in a weird way, everything about the trans issue just points back to the problem of patriarchy.
0: It does also kind of tie into another concept which you tangle with, which is kind of technological, techno-fixes, as you call them, or technological fundamentalism. Because in, in essence, transgenderism involves surgery and hormones and all these hardcore modifications to us as human beings.
1: It's another curious aspect of this whole debate That people who are progressive, who want to get back to a more ecological worldview, where instead of trying to use fossil fuels and high technology to control the world, want to get more in some sense of balance for the human species. Yet in this one issue, transgenderism, support uncritically the use of high-tech medicine, which essentially makes anyone who goes through those processes then a lifelong patient. You are tied to the medical community for the rest of your life. I, I don't use this phrase lightly. Carving up the human body to meet some social expectation is not my idea of an ecological worldview. And what's funny, of course, is this ecological worldview is being promoted on the left. It's largely a left analysis. Yet in this one issue, it's thrown out the window. You know, imagine good progressive parents who, when they go to the grocery store, are reading every label to make sure their kids don't get too many pesticides in their food. They don't want, you know, growth hormones in their milk. Yet, they can turn around and embrace the use of puberty blockers, delaying puberty in an adolescent on the theory that it will make their gender transition easier when they're an adult. Well, what is a puberty blocker? Well, it's a drug. It's actually a cancer drug. It's an off-label use of a cancer drug, which has not been tested in any meaningful way, on children. Well, do we see the disconnect there before being concerned about the chemical contamination of our world, and then turning around and embracing a chemical solution to a problem that is deeply embedded in both individual psychology and cultural norms? It feels crazy, and I don't mean that in some flippant way, but it feels out of control. And it doesn't make sense to a lot of very ordinary people who are not trying to be bigoted. They're trying to figure things out.
0: You said in an article about technological fundamentalism that it promotes the view that life is some kind of engineering project. And that's kind of what brings to mind. We don't have to think about living differently. We can treat nature as our dumping ground for everything we want to do. We just engineer our way out of every problem. We don't have to work in concert with the natural world at all.
1: Every technology ever invented has had negative consequences that could not have been predicted at the time of the invention of the technology. The greatest example, of course, is the internal combustion energy, which is an amazing invention. It allows us to use petroleum to do work that otherwise would take many, many people or many, many animals. That's pretty cool. Problem is global warming. When the internal combustion engine was invented, nobody thought, hmm, what's this gonna do to the the temperature of the earth? Well, that's the story of technology. So what is technological fundamentalism? I think it's thinking that problems can all be solved by technology, including problems caused by previous versions of technology. It's kind of crazy, yet we're stuck. And I think that back to the trans question, I think the medicalization of gender dysphoria, of people's deeply felt distress over gender norms, I think the use of drugs, hormones, and surgery to address that is a kind of technological fundamentalism. And I think it's going to have negative consequences down the road that we can't even predict yet because it's not been studied adequately. And the trans movement has a stake in making sure that we don't ask those questions and that the experiences of people for whom it wasn't a solution are not part of the conversation.
0: For sure, so we don't want to tinker with a machine, we want to dismantle the machine, but how do we do that?
1: Given how far advanced the ecological and social decay is, where do we look for any sense of hope? And I don't have a bright, happy message about this. Frankly, the older I get, the more I'm tired of bright, happy messages. Women and some men have been fighting patriarchy as long as it had been patriarchy, you know. People of color have been fighting white supremacy as long as there's been white supremacy. Workers in capitalism have been fighting since there was capitalism. And all three systems remain in place, not without change. So we can see how those resistances have brought about positive change. We can also see how powerful the systems are. You continue to look for places to struggle, hoping you're making the right choice, with no guarantee. We engage in the political activity not just because we know it's going to work, but it's because how we make meaning in our lives. I'm as committed to radical feminism as when I first encountered it, not because I've been successful or I think it's going to be successful tomorrow and I want to be on the winning team, but because I can't imagine a life without it, because that's what gives meaning to my life. The same with my you know, anti-racist politics or my anti-capitalist politics or my environmental politics. On none of those fronts do I imagine quick victories. I don't have a very happy view of where we're heading ecologically, for instance. But still, there is work that can be done within the disaster. That's maybe not a very inspiring way to end, but (laughs) that's the way it looks to me.
0: Well, thank you for talking to me. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. It was wonderful. Thank you for listening to Subject to Power. You can find the show online at subjecttopower.com or subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts. I'd love to know your thoughts on these conversations, so please drop a note on the website or find us on social media. The best way to support the show is to rate and review Subject to Power on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. Subject to power is written, hosted, and produced by me, El Kamihira. Audio engineering is done by Jason Sheesley at Abridged Audio, cover art by B. Johnson, and music by Beware of Darkness.